This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon. I'm pleased to welcome you to the first CAP Center event of the 2003-14 academic year. First, I want to thank the various faculty who encouraged students to attend this lecture, and of course to thank the students themselves for coming. Thanks also to the Education Abroad Program and Human Rights Watch for co-sponsoring this lecture. Let me just point out that, as I mentioned, our programs are videoed for UCTV, and it's important there will be opportunity for questions after the lecture, and it's important if you have a question for our speaker that you come forward to one of these microphones and ask your question there. That would be much appreciated. This is our lecture, a lecture we give every two years on human rights. And this year we're honored to have as our lecturer Martina Vandenberg. She has spent nearly two decades fighting human trafficking, forced labor, rape as a war crime, and violence against women. She has represented victims of human trafficking pro bono in immigration, criminal, and civil cases. Widely regarded as an expert on an array of human rights issues, she has testified before the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Human Rights and the Law, the Helsinki Commission, the House Foreign Affairs uh, Human Rights Committee, and the House Armed Services Committee. She is a former Human Rights Watch researcher and she's authored two Human Rights Watch reports. In 2012, she established the Human Trafficking Pro Bono Legal Center in Washington, D.C. She has received numerous prizes and recognitions for her work. A Rhodes Scholar and a Truman Scholar, there's much more I could say about her. But you're not here to hear me talk about her, you're here to hear her. So it is my pleasure to introduce to you Martina Vandenberg, who will speak to us on human trafficking, ending the myths, and confronting the realities. Ms. Vandenberg. Thank you. It's an honor to be here today. I'd like to thank the CAPS Center and Leonard Wallach and Wade Clark Roof for that wonderful introduction, and also Elena Nelson, who got everything going today. So as I said, it's an honor to be here. There's a president of the United States who is rumored to have said that he wanted to put a chicken in every pot. Some people will say it's Calvin Coolidge, others say it was Herbert Hoover. Neither of them actually said that. But my goal, and the goal of the Human Trafficking Pro Bono Legal Center, is to put a lawyer in every pot. Some people think that lawyers belong in pots, but nevertheless, the point is that the dream that we have is that every trafficking victim in the United States should have a lawyer. 
But today, what I want to start with are some of the myths that we all have seen in the commercial media about trafficking, what trafficking is and what it looks like in the United States and around the world. I want to give a head nod before I begin to Foreign Policy Magazine and to a writer named David A. Fongold, who's an anthropologist. Some of you may have read his work. Several years ago, he did a very interesting piece called Rethinking Human Trafficking. And I have borrowed his concept, but not his myths. Um, he has myths in that piece. I would commend the article to you because it's actually very, very good. But these myths are myths that we have seen here in the United States, and they are all our own. So myth number one is that human trafficking statistics are based on sound methodological research. And that is false. Because in the United States and around the world, you will hear wild figures about how many trafficking victims there are. The most recent numbers that came out came from a committee working with Kevin Bales, an expert on modern day forms of slavery. They were trying to capitalize and trying to enumerate what they called dark numbers, numbers that couldn't be measured. And they came up with 27 million. Others have had 30 million. The numbers are all over the map. Be skeptical. When you hear about numbers relating to human trafficking, I beg you, be skeptical. The best numbers that we can find are actually the International Labor Organization, because the International Labor Organization has been trying now for more than a decade to quantify what forced labor and trafficking looks like around the world, and their number is 20.9 million. Now, I've put at the bottom the source, because in addition to this number, they also published a 40-page report on their methodology because the methodology here is key. One of my favorite stories is a professor who was visiting at Yale who was at a huge conference in Geneva. And all of the human trafficking wonks were there, everybody who does numbers, and he had just read a new set of statistics. And he said to one group of researchers, because it had been published in a State Department report, he said, I just saw your new numbers. Those are so excellent. What's your methodology? And the person from the State Department said, oh, those aren't our numbers. Those belong to the International Organization for Migration. Luckily, he was at a cocktail party. He walked across the room, and he went to those representatives. He said, great new numbers. What was your methodology? And they said, oh, those, aren't ours. those are not our numbers. Those are the State Department's numbers. So there's a lot of finger pointing and a lot of back and forth, but my feeling is that the ILO number is probably the closest that we're going to get. Myth number two, most trafficking victims are trafficked into the sex industry. Now again, if you read the New York Times, the LA Times, the articles that appear on page one are all sex trafficking cases, but this is actually false. If you look at the International Labor Organization's data, and again, keeping in mind that these are estimates, but done through as careful a methodology as you can get in the trafficking world, which I might add, at one point, Ambassador Lou C. DeBaca, who is the head of the trafficking office at the State Department, was commenting on human trafficking as a field in a speech at University of Minnesota, and he said that for too long, human trafficking has been what he calls a rigor-free zone as if you can tell a whole bunch of emotionally laden stories and anecdotes, and that somehow makes up for rigor. And so what we need now in the human trafficking world is real rigor, real academic work that can show us not only what this problem is, but how we can stop it. What the ILO believes is that almost everyone, all but 2.2 million, are people who are being exploited in the private sector. 
So 2.2 million exploited in the state sector, forced labor camps, that sort of thing, but most people in the private sector. And of that, about 4.5 million in sexual exploitation. Now again, look at the forced labor for labor, expectation, for labor exploitation. It's nearly three times that amount. And yet, what we are fed in the media, constant stories, constant stories of sex trafficking. Horrifying as they are, this problem is much, much bigger than that. Myth number three, law enforcement and criminal prosecutors are successfully combating human trafficking. Again, reading the papers, you could get the impression that all the Department of Justice does day by day is prosecute human traffickers. But unfortunately, that too is false. If you actually look at the numbers, the numbers that the federal government publishes itself about how many prosecutions there were in 2011, that number is 125. In the entire country, I'm not talking about just California, 125 in the country. And if you look at the numbers for labor trafficking, 24 cases in the entire country. Again, the numbers are getting slightly better because DOJ-wide, the entire US Department of Justice, all the US attorney's offices in the United States, 103 in 2010. In 2012, the Department of Justice Attorney General report to Congress. Every year, the Attorney General is required to provide a report to Congress, a report card of the United States of how the United States is doing combating trafficking, since we've taken it upon ourselves to grade every other country in the world in our State Department report. The Attorney General report indicated that there were 128 cases total, again, in the entire country. So if the feeling is that we're going to be able to prosecute our way out of human trafficking, I fear that we are sadly mistaken because the United States is not an outlier. Not an outlier because in 2012, in the world, there were only 7,705 prosecutions. Now again, on the data question, be skeptical because this is the State Department's report statistics from countries that have self-reported. And so the countries are themselves saying, we did 100 prosecutions, we did 200 prosecutions, but those countries have an incentive to lie because the more prosecutions they report, the less likely it is that they will end up on the State Department hit list, better known as tier three of the State Department's report. The State Department publishes this report every year. It grades every country in the world based on a set of criteria whether or not they're doing enough to fight human trafficking. If you're doing really well, you get to be in Tier 1. We're in Tier 1, and yet we only have 128 prosecutions. If you're doing some and making efforts, you're in Tier 2. If you're really falling down on the job and about to tumble into the lowest ranking tier, you're in tier two watch list. And if you are doing practically nothing, you're in tier three. It will not surprise you that most of the countries in tier three are already countries that we dislike, where there is very little uh, difficulty in slamming a country. <laughs> and so countries like Cuba will frequently appear on tier three. Nevertheless, if you're in tier three, US aid can be cut off. 
So your aid can be slashed if you're in tier three. So it has real consequences. There's a real stick. The number, though, that I find disturbing is this number. If the ILO is correct, and there really are 14 million plus cases of forced labor in the world, how is it that there were only 1,153 prosecutions of forced labor in the world? That parenthetical should give us great pause because it is not the case that countries are actually prosecuting forced labor. And since the figures are forced, since the figures are self-reported, and since countries do not want to be on tier three, and because these countries have an incentive to exaggerate, it is entirely possible that even this number, 7,705, is exaggerated and may include things like kidnapping, may include garden variety prostitution that is not trafficking. The other number that should make us really worry is this one. 46,570 victims identified around the world. Fewer than 47,000 people identified as trafficking victims held in forced labor or forced prostitution or commercial sexual exploitation of children in the world when there are 20.9 20, million people in the entire population who could be identified and yet have not. So as I look around at the array of problems in, in trying to fight human trafficking, these numbers, I think, give a very good snapshot of where we are and how far we have to go. Myth number four, there's no forced labor in the United States. Again, I think people believe, and the media certainly pushes them in that direction, people believe that forced labor is something that happens elsewhere. Forced labor is children on looms in India. Forced labor is children working in mines in Africa, but that's false. Because trafficking for forced labor in the United States can hide behind facades like this one, perfectly normal houses in perfectly middle upper class households, neighborhoods around the United States. Now this is just an example house. I'm not saying that forced prostitution or forced labor or human trafficking occurred behind this particular facade, but there are others where it did. So this is New Jersey. In New Jersey, a group of human traffickers brought over children, little girls, ranging in age from about 10 to about 17, brought them over from West Africa. They had a very elaborate scheme to bring these children into the United States. As you know, every year, some people win the green card lottery. It's a real boon when you win the green card lottery. But winning the lottery isn't enough. You actually have to pay the processing fees, buy a plane ticket, get the visa to come to the United States. These things can be difficult and expensive. So this particular ingenious family trafficking ring decided, we're going to figure out who won the green card lottery, and then we're going to offer to do all of their paperwork for them and pay all of their expenses. And all they have to do is adopt these children or marry these young women and bring them along with them. And then when they arrive in New Jersey, hand them over to us so that we can hold them in forced labor in hair braiding salons. Hair braiding salons. Again, not a place that we would necessarily associate with forced labor. And yet these young girls came to the United States were forced to braid hair 12, 14 hours a day without any breaks, no days off. They were paid nothing. 
At least one of them was raped by one of the traffickers, by the son of the parents who, who were the main traffickers. Again, an example of what we see very frequently, which is the intersection of sex and labor trafficking, where victims who are held in forced labor are also forced to provide sexual services to, to the traffickers. The U.S. Attorney's Office in New Jersey that prosecuted this case determined that these little girls, braiding hair every day, had earned probably about $3.9 million for their traffickers. Again, one of the myths that we see all the time is that the sex industry is where people are trafficked because you can earn so much money in that industry. But hair braiding is also pretty lucrative, frankly. And so these girls were held in, this is one of, the, one of the hair braiding salons. Interestingly enough, the prosecutor told a group of judges that the worst part, the most difficult part of that case, the thing that the, that the, thing that the prosecutors worried about most was how to explain to the jury that every morning those little girls woke up, they walked out of the house where they were living like sardines and squalor. They walked out of the house, and every morning they turned left and went to the hair braiding salons and didn't turn right to run away. The prosecutor had to explain to the jury why that was the case. What were these chains? Because now people think about human trafficking as people chained to a radiator. And if there are no chains, then they couldn't have been, tra they couldn't have been trafficked. But the reality is that much of the chaining is psychological. It is the threats of deportation, it is the threats of harm, it is the threats of arrest, it is the threats of detention, it is the threats of going back to your country of origin in total shame with nothing. And those are the chains that actually bind many of these trafficking victims. Another site that we rarely think of as a site for forced labor, hotels. Because of the really excellent work of ECPAT, and other organizations that look at child commercial sexual exploitation. Hotels have put a great deal of focus on trying to stop predators from forcing children to have sex in hotel rooms. And so boards of directors of large hotel chains have made statements and issued policies, and there is tremendous focus on that. But very few people are asking the question of who does the landscaping and who makes the beds. One of the worst cases prosecuted in the United States was a case in Kansas City, Missouri. Again, not necessarily what you would think of as a hub of human trafficking. But in Kansas City, Missouri, a case called U.S. versus Asar Hujayev prosecuted a man as well as his enterprise of American accountants, American lawyers, and others who helped him obtain legal visas for workers to come to the United States to work temporarily in the hospitality industry. They paid huge recruiting fees to come to the United States from the Dominican Republic, from Jamaica, from Eastern Europe, from Uzbekistan, where Mr. Asghar Khujayev was himself from. And when they got to the United States, instead of finding legal jobs, what they found instead were jobs in hotels where they had to pay vast sums to live in lousy housing, where they had to share beds, where they had to pay for transportation back and forth to the places of work, 
where they found that the recruiters and trafficking brokers had actually purposefully placed them in hotels where they would be automatically out of status, so that if they were caught by immigration officials, they would be arrested for violating the terms of their visas. This was all very well thought out by Mr. Asar Hojaev and his compatriots, and these individuals worked as waitresses, as housekeepers, and as landscapers in large hotels, and I guarantee you, large hotels that you have stayed in. You have stayed in these chains. And the reason I know that is because one of the pieces of the indictment was for money laundering. Because Mr. Asar Hojaev would receive huge checks from these very, very fancy hotels for the subcontracted work of all of the housekeepers. And he would cash those checks, hence the money laundering, but he would not pass that money on to the workers. The workers instead, because they were racking up such enormous fees for transportation and housing and food, some of those workers received negative paychecks at the end of a work period. It is remarkable that this is the United States in the 21st century, in hotels and golf courses. Another big case that was done in Florida was a case done against labor brokers who brought Filipino workers to the United States. They actually recruited them off of uh, the love boat. They recruited them off of cruise ships that were docked in Florida. And they told those workers, working on the cruise ships is crummy. We'll get you great jobs working at the Boca Raton Country Club. Except that when they worked at the Boca Raton Country Club, they were held in forced labor. And in this case, two residents of Boca Raton pled guilty to holding 39 workers. So who made that golf course so beautiful? People held in forced labor and paid practically nothing. Wedding gowns and wedding salons. Again, who would ever in a million years think that the place that you go to, to buy your prom dress or your wedding gown could possibly be a place where individuals were being held in forced labor? And yet, in Arizona, in Flagstaff, this is actually a picture of FBI and ICE agents doing a raid of that very facility, that very store, where women throughout Flagstaff had traditionally bought their prom dresses because it was alleged, and this case is ongoing still, that the people who were actually doing the mending of those gowns, the people who were actually doing the, the alteration of those gowns, were held in the back room in forced labor, and also allegedly forced to do all the scut work in the homes of those who owned the bridal shop. Now, this actually is quite a funny picture, although it may not be apparent immediately why. It's hard to find humor in human trafficking. You have to work very hard. This, this is actually a US marshal, because the US, I talked to the US attorney who brought this case. The US attorney's office realized that there were a lot of women who had bought wedding gowns from this particular shop, and they were all waiting for the wedding gowns to be delivered. And so they couldn't close the wedding gown shop down because the deliveries would come, women's weddings would be ruined. And so the US Marshal Service, that's actually a badge, the US Marshal Service ran the wedding salon. They ran the salon. This happens to be a woman, but the men had to take turns too. And the US attorney said that one thing that they did do was go through the entire stock of the wedding gown salon to make sure that they weren't selling anything that might make the marshals blush. 
But again, this is not a place that you would expect to find human trafficking, and yet here it is also alleged. This is much more what we're used to seeing. Operation Cross Country, an entire US federal enforcement operation geared to find children who are in the sex industry. Because under international law and under federal law, anyone under 18 who is induced to commit a commercial sex act is trafficked automatically. So here we have 105 children recovered, 150 suspects arrested, but that's the good news. But when you deal with trafficking, you have to ask always, what happens next? What happens after this? What happens to those 105 children? Is that really a rescue? Well, for some of the people who were confronted in Operation Cross Country 7, it was not a rescue because the way the operation worked, according to one expert from an NGO, they would make an appointment to meet with a woman. They would make the arrangements over the internet. The police and law enforcement would be waiting in the hotel room. The person would arrive. If the person was over 18, whether or not she was trafficked, that person was then sent on her way. Whether or not she was a trafficking victim, because they were looking for children. So that rescue was not a rescue for any of the adults who were confronted. But was it actually a rescue for the children? Actually, for many of them, it was not. In 2010, and that's the year for which data is available at this point, from the Department of Justice, Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, OJJDP, a thousand children, a thousand children in the United States under 18 were arrested for prostitution. That's not the federal law. Those children are all victims under federal law. So why here in the United States are we arresting children for engaging in behavior that automatically international law and US law makes them a victim? How is it that we're arresting these children? If you look at the numbers, 82% were girls, and 11% were under 15 years old. How can a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 15-year-old be arrested and prosecuted for prostitution? The other point that's, I think, equally problematic is that these numbers don't even begin to cover all of the ancillary crimes with which these children are threatened prosecution. I met with a guardian ad litem, a lawyer in Florida, who talked about a case where a child had been sent to a home, a little boy had been sent to a home in order to provide a sexual service to the adult male who lived in that home. The child left the house, the adult male refused to pay. The child threw rocks at the house. Guess who was arrested? The child. We put a hypothetical to a group of child protective services workers in one state. And the hypothetical was, if you were going to prosecute a trafficking case, but you needed the victim, the child victim, to wear a wire and go meet with the trafficker, what would you do, Department of Child Services? And the answer was, we would cooperate with the detective and make a safety plan for the child. Using a child as bait? That's outrageous. That's not a rescue. That's highly problematic. In another state, 
The judges got together and decided that it was a really bad thing putting child trafficking victims behind bars and putting them in juvenile detention centers. So what was their big idea? They put them in the psychiatric unit instead. I spoke at a judicial conference in Florida with all of the family judges from that area of Florida in the room. And after the presentation, one hand went up, many hands went up, but the person called on said, well, what are we supposed to do with these child prostitutes? They run away. Number one, under the federal law definition, there's no such thing as a child prostitute. These are now victims of trafficking. And number two, if they run away, putting them in juvenile detention is not the answer. Can we not do better in the 21st century in the United States? That's the focus on sex trafficking for minors, but even for adults held in forced labor or held in forced prostitution in the United States, a rescue is not necessarily a rescue. One of the good things that Congress did, and I'm from Washington, D.C., and I can tell you from personal observation that Congress doesn't do much right, but Congress did one thing that was terrific, which was it created a new visa scheme. So if someone is a foreigner and they're a victim of human trafficking, they can get something called a T visa. It used to be that we would always ask for visas for our clients and we would ask for S visas. S visa is short in the business for snitch visas. Snitch visas were bad. There were only 250 of them a year. They were generally, re they were generally reserved for high profile and high value drug trafficking informers or mafia informers. So they generally wouldn't give S visas to our clients, so when the T visa came along, we thought that this was really fantastic, and it is fantastic. And there are 5,000 available each year. But the problem is, we've never given away 5,000. In 2010, we gave 447. In 2011, we gave 557. And our banner year of 2012, we gave 674. And the latest news from the Department of Homeland Security is that that number may actually go down this year. There's another protective scheme that is designed to help victims of trafficking who are rescued called continued presence. It allows these individuals to stay in the United States without fear of deportation as long as they cooperate with law enforcement in an ongoing criminal investigation. Guess how many of those there were last year? 199 in the entire country. And it is not that advocates in the anti-trafficking community do not ask for these. We do ask but frequently we don't get. Myth number six, only women and girls are trafficked. Again, as you might expect, also false. Going back to the International Labor Organization statistics, what they came up with was 55% of trafficking victims around the world are women and girls, and 45% are men and boys. And so the number is almost equal, nearly equal. These people tend to be trafficked into different spheres. Certainly women and children tend to be trafficked into the sex industry. But men around the world tend to be trafficked into construction, into forced labor in factories. There's all, all hosts of forced labor around the world, but many, many victims are men. Again, one of the things that we hear all the time is about cases of child trafficking because there's so much sympathy, as there should be, for, for trafficking of children. And yet, it seems that only about a quarter of those who are held in forced labor are actually children. 
Myth number seven, all trafficking victims enter the destination country illegally. False. And the problem here is that you don't have to cross a border. So the children that I've been talking to you about who are being arrested around the country are US citizen children. These are legal permanent resident children, children with green cards, children who are US native born. They didn't enter the country illegally, they were born here. And similarly, every single client that I have ever represented as an attorney in the United States has come into the United States legally on a legal visa with an expectation of legal work. Most of the people that I've represented have what are called A3 visas. Those are people who are brought in as domestic workers to work for diplomats in households in Washington, D.C. and the surrounding residential area. A3 visa holders are particularly vulnerable to trafficking for domestic servitude because the moment they walk out the door of their employer, the diplomat, from whatever country he might come, the moment they walk out that door, they are undocumented and illegal and at risk for deportation. Similarly, J1 visas. Does anybody remember the Hershey scandal recently? So the J-1 visas are for short-term visitor visas. There are a lot of students in the room today for students just like you. Students who want to go abroad to the United States to do a kind of work study over the summer. Well, guess what? Unfortunately, what many of these J-1 visa holders learn about the United States is that it is a place of great exploitation. So I put up this cheetahs sign, cheetahs on the strip. Young women from Ukraine came to the United States, at least one of them on a J-1 visa, on a work exchange where she was supposed to work as a waitress in a normal restaurant. And instead of working in Virginia, as she had been promised, she was met at the airport and immediately taken to Detroit, where she was told that she had to strip at Cheetahs on the Strip. She earned nothing. The traffickers took all of her money. And in addition, because she was held incommunicado, from her family and unable to communicate with anyone at all, she was raped by one of the traffickers as well. So this case was actually prosecuted, but many are not. And around the country, we see cases of exploitation of J-1 workers who, when leaving the United States on what is supposed to be a phenomenal exchange program, say, I will never come back. If this is a program designed to create goodwill, we have done precisely the opposite. So not every experience that anyone has on a J-1 visa is terrible, but enough that the program is tainted. Similarly, we see an array of visas that people come to the United States legally, G-5, NATO-8, H-1B, H-2B, all of these visas where people enter the country legally thinking they work and then discover that they're going to be held in exploitation and forced labor in the United States, a country where they thought there were labor laws. Myth number eight, all trafficking is controlled by the, myth, by the mafia. I confronted this myth the first time when I was speaking to a group, when I was still at Human Rights Watch, when I was speaking to a group of donors about trafficking of women into Israel for forced prostitution. And at the end of the presentation, which was pretty grim, uh, because in Israel, it was a while ago, this was 10 or 15 years ago, but in Israel at that point, women were being brought in from the former Soviet Union, and every single woman that I interviewed was in prison. 
and every single woman knew her purchase price because she had been purchased for a certain amount and that was her debt and she had to work off that debt before she could go free. But unfortunately, by and large, once they worked off that debt, the trafficker just sent them to another trafficker and sold them all over again. So the debt just started again all over. But this audience member came up to me and said, you know, when I arrived tonight, I was going to make a donation, but I changed my mind after hearing you speak. The development director of Human Rights Watch groaned, uh, as did I. And she said, she said, I, I can't make a donation because because my small amount of money could never, ever go against the mafia. The mafia is too strong, and I'm too weak. I couldn't possibly stop the mob. And yet the reality is, unfortunately, that trafficking is not controlled by gangs or by the mafia. Some is, but it's a remarkably small amount. When I was doing work for Human Rights Watch in Bosnia and Herzegovina following the war, looking at forced prostitution in that region of the world, what we found was that many of the traffickers were actually mom and pop stores who were selling beer and french fries and discovered that they could actually earn more money if they sold women as well, and they could earn lots of money if they sold women without paying them anything and locking them up during the day and feeding them less than they should. It is not all the mob. And in fact, some traffickers look like this. This is Mrs. Subnani. She and her husband, Mr. Subnani, were convicted in New York. Some of you may have seen the press coverage, which was pretty vibrant, as you can see here. This was a particularly troubling case. It was a domestic servitude case. And in domestic servitude cases, we don't often see huge amounts of violence. We do frequently see men who are raping the women in the household who are the domestic servants. But we often don't see huge amounts of violence because in the domestic servitude cases, frequently just the threats of deportation are enough to keep the victim coerced and in place. But in this case, Mrs. Subnani was using horrible, horrible methods of torture in order to make an example of one of the trafficking victims so that the other domestic worker in the home would not balk and would not refuse to work. Two Indonesian women brought to this house, a nice house, on Long Island, forced to work around the clock. Mrs. Samnani, when one of the victims would do something she didn't like, would pull her ears, literally separating her ears from her head. And so when she was found by law enforcement, she had these unexplained wounds and scars behind her ears. They couldn't figure out how this had happened. One of the victims finally decided, these are not my clients, so the only thing that I know is in the public domain, so I'm just reporting what's in the public domain. One of the victims, as far as I can tell from, from learning about this case, determined that she would die if she stayed in this house because the level of abuse was so severe. And so she ran away and ran to the only place that she could find, which was a Dunkin' Donuts store. And the Dunkin' Donuts store uh, owner was just opening up. He opened up, and he looked at this woman and thought, you know, she doesn't look like a regular homeless person. Something's wrong here. She was wearing sort of a long gown, but underneath the long gown, she was wearing clothes that had been ripped to pieces and were sewn back together like a patchwork quilt because one of the methods to torture this victim that Mrs. Subnani used was ripping off all her clothes and making her sew them back together again in order to keep her busy. The Dunkin' Donuts owner gave her a cup of coffee and called the police. 
The police came, and luckily the officer who arrived on the scene was an officer who had just gone through a morning briefing on human trafficking. And luckily, it happened to be a police officer who had done a morning briefing that didn't just cover sex trafficking, but also covered forced labor. And because of that, he too realized that something was wrong in this case. And so he called, and this is what we hope all police officers will do, he called a local NGO in New York. And the non-governmental organization sent out an expert who quickly assessed that this woman needed an interpreter. They found someone who spoke the proper dialect of Indonesian that this woman spoke and ascertained that there was a second victim in the house. Law enforcement got a search warrant. Again, not a search warrant for money or things or drugs like we would normally see on CSI, but actually a search warrant for a human being. And they went in the house and found another victim. And that other victim showed them where they would hide the food in the ceiling tiles because they never had enough to eat. She showed them in the refrigerator the hot peppers that Mrs. Subnani kept in order to force these domestic workers to eat the hot peppers until they would throw up as a method of torturing them. She showed them the bathroom where Mrs. Subnani would take one of the victims. And the victim had this very strange set of wounds on her arms. They couldn't figure out what they were. At first, the police thought that they were cigarette burns. They later determined that these were actually half moons from Mrs. Subnani putting her fingernails into the woman's arm whenever she did something that she did not like. So the second victim, for her, this actually was a rescue. Again, even the domestic servitude cases, sometimes a rescue is not a rescue, to go back to that particular myth. We have cases of domestic workers who believe that the police officers and ICE agents knocking at the door are not the bringers of salvation, but are indeed there to arrest them. They are the culmination of everything that the traffickers have promised all along, because the traffickers tell them, Someday, the police will knock at the door, and they won't be looking for me. They'll be looking for you, and they will arrest you, detain you, and deport you. And so some of the victims in domestic servitude cases, by the time the ICE agents find them, they are hiding behind a piece of furniture, hiding in a closet, terrified that they've come for them, and not to rescue them, but to arrest them. So in this particular case, Mrs. Subnani and her husband both went to prison. They're both in prison now. Mrs. Subnani got a, oh, more than 11 years. Her husband got about three years. They were also forced to pay more than $900,000 in criminal restitution to these victims. So it doesn't necessarily look like the mafia. In fact, it looks like a perfectly normal house in Muttontown, Long Island, because this is where these things happened, not in a mafia front. Myth number nine. All trafficking victims are kidnapped. And I put the picture of taken up for a reason. I was talking to a federal prosecutor recently who has an excellent track record prosecuting traffickers around the United States. And he said, you know, I couldn't figure out what was wrong with juries in America. I couldn't figure it out. And, and finally, I figured out what's wrong with juries in America. They saw the movie Taken. And they believe that everybody who is trafficked has been kidnapped. And everyone who is trafficked is a college student going to Paris and captured by the mob. And that's not actually how trafficking frequently happens. Experts on trafficking will tell you that trafficking is very frequently migration gone wrong. It is the betrayal of trust. It is someone going with her friend's brother to get a job as a waitress in the town next door who then ends up 
not in the town next door, but elsewhere. In all the years I have worked on human trafficking, with all the victims I have interviewed and all the victims I've represented in court, I have met one who was kidnapped. One. Everyone else moved voluntarily to some extent, and then something went badly wrong along the way. And myth number 10, there's nothing that I can do. And this, unfortunately, is the biggest myth of all, because there's actually a lot that you can do. There's an enormous amount that you can do. One is that you can be an informed consumer. And actually, California is way ahead of the game on this. And I think a lot of the credit goes to Julia Ormond, the actress, for passage of the California Transparency and Supply Chains Act. The California Transparency and Supply Chains Act forces every single company doing business in California that has more than a certain sort of international financial portfolio to look into its supply chain and try and determine whether or not there's forced labor lurking in that supply chain. It doesn't say that they have to actually fix it, although you hope that they will. But what it does say is that every company has to put a little rider on its website where consumers can find it, and that little statement has to say whether they have looked. And hopefully, they have looked, and hopefully, if they've found anything, they have fixed it. Being an informed consumer means asking questions. It means refusing to buy things if there is the taint of forced labor or exploitation in a product that you might be buying. I'll give you an example. When I worked for Human Rights Watch, a friend of mine wanted to go to Tiffany's because she was getting engaged and she wanted to get a diamond ring. And so I went with her just as a moral support. But my real purpose in going was, while she was looking at all the beautiful diamond solitaires, my real purpose in going was to go to the Tiffany's salesperson and to say to the Tiffany's salesperson, excuse me, my friend's looking for a ring. I'm wondering, have you checked to make sure that none of these are blood diamonds? that none of these are tainted by civil wars in Africa. And I kid you not, this very well-dressed man at the Tiffany's store pulled a 40-page memo, and he had a stack of them, 40-page memo from under the table and said, yes, we have looked, and we have made sure that the diamonds that we're selling are not tainted. Right? So you can question whether or not that report is accurate, but the point is that they looked. And the point is that the company cared, and the reason the company cared is because Consumers like you force them to care. The second thing you can do is call. If you see something that seems suspicious based on all you know about trafficking, you can call the hotline and give them a tip. One of the most sort of startling uh, examples of, of trafficking that was uncovered, and again, one of the major problems with trafficking in the United States is under-identification of victims. Someone called a hotline to report that there was a woman. They only saw the woman leave the house to take out the garbage. They never saw her outside for any other reason. And I kid you not, the tip went something like this. When she leaves the house to take out the garbage, she looks sad. And that was the tip. That woman had been held for four years in forced labor in that house in suburban Washington, D.C. Or another case 
where a family living in Orange County in kind of a, a mansion or a mansionette looked across that little swath of grass where you peer into each other's kitchens, looked across the swath of grass and realized that although it was one o'clock in the morning, there was a child doing dishes. And that neighbor thought, I've never seen that child before. I've never seen that child go to school. That child is never outside playing. Why is she doing dishes at one o'clock in the morning? Well, guess what? That child was trafficked. She had been trafficked to the United States at the age of 11 to take care of the other five children in the household and do all of the maid's work in that household. She was paid nothing. It was a wealthy neighborhood in Arvine in Orange County. And the neighbor called it in. And when Child Protective Services got there, they asked the owner of that house whether he had any children. He said, yes, I have five children. And then they said to him, do you have any other children? He said, yes, we have one other child. She's the uh, relative, distant relative. She lives here, too. And the police officers asked to talk to that child, who only spoke Arabic. They found an interpreter, handed the child the phone, and the child admitted that she had never gone to school in the United States, and that was enough to pull her out. Now, human trafficking stories frequently don't have terribly happy endings, but this one does, because that child participated in the criminal prosecution. The traffickers were convicted. They were forced to pay criminal restitution, which is mandatory under federal law. So she got at least $80,000 in back wages in criminal restitution. She was adopted by an American family. She went to college. She became an American citizen. And her goal in life is to be an ICE agent. So she's currently studying to be an ICE agent. Happily, the other wonderful thing that happened and very inspiring thing that happened is that the ICE agent who pulled her out of the squalid garage where she was forced to live in total darkness because the light bulb had broken out, with the bucket in, in which she was forced to wash her clothes because the family said that her clothes were dirty and couldn't possibly be put in the same washing machine as the family's clothing, the ICE officer who pulled her out stayed in touch with her and has been like her father throughout. So if anybody makes sure that that child becomes an ICE agent, it will be that ICE agent. The other thing you can do is advocate for trafficking victims and better, better laws. So the real cutting edge in the United States right now are safe harbor laws, safe harbor and vacator laws. One of the problems that we see with victims of trafficking who've been trafficked into the sex industry is that many of them are arrested, not identified as trafficking victims, and prosecuted, which means some of them have a rap sheet that is as long as the phone book. There is no way in the United States that you can get a job if you have a record with prostitution crimes spanning 10, 15, 20 years back. And so there is a group of amazing lawyers, particularly in New York. There are about 13 states now that have vacator laws. One particular lawyer, Kate Mogulescu at Legal Aid in New York, is spearheading, along with a number of other really brilliant attorneys, efforts to vacate all of those convictions. A group of lawyers went into a courtroom in Queens, and the judge in that case vacated not just the prostitution convictions, but also the drug convictions on one woman's record, because the judge realized that the drug convictions were also crimes that this woman was forced to commit by her trafficker, who was also her husband. In all, one victim 
had 87 prostitution convictions in all of the boroughs of New York. Each one of those had to be pulled up from archives, dusted off, and vacated. But once that happens, trafficking victims can actually move on with their lives. They can go forward, they can get jobs, and they can move on. Another option is to support or volunteer a local anti-trafficking NGO. There are wonderful NGOs here in Southern California. Probably the premier NGO doing anti-trafficking work here in Southern California is the Coalition Against Slavery and Trafficking, or CAST, in Los Angeles. And they're doing many of these uh, legal projects as well. But the most important thing you can do is just think differently. Think differently about trafficking. It's not all about sex. I mentioned at the beginning that the real dream of the Human Trafficking Pro Bono Legal Center is to provide a lawyer for every trafficking victim in the United States so that they can get restitution, so that the traffickers can go to prison, so that if the client wants to, we can do a follow-on civil case against the trafficker, which is another area of cutting-edge legal work that we're doing now. When this works, it is a game-changer. And so one of my favorite stories, and I'll close with this because I want to leave plenty of time for questions. A trafficking victim was walking into her attorney's office. She'd never met these attorneys. This was her new pro bono attorney that she was meeting for the first time that day. And she turned to her social worker, and she said to her social worker, as she walked through this lobby with the marble and brass fixtures and palm trees and a beautiful atrium and a statue, and she said, are, are these my lawyers? And the social worker said, yeah, these are your lawyers. They're working for you for free. They're working pro bono. And the victim turned to the social worker and said, I feel like the powerful people are on my side now. And that's what this is about. This is about putting the powerful people on the side of the trafficking victims, because the powerful people have been on the side of the traffickers for far too long. Thank you. So I think they've set up microphones. If there are any questions, if anybody would like to ask any questions, I'm happy to answer. Uh, I'll begin. Thank you for a troubling and important uh, presentation. Um, a couple of things. One, California, as you know, has an anti-trafficking law signed into law, interestingly, by Arnold Schwarzenegger before he stepped down. I wonder if you could comment on that, tell us how it works. And I also wonder if the idea of trafficking could be expanded without diluting it to include the probably hundreds of millions of workers, mainly women around the world, who are working in horrendous conditions because they have an alternative. Uh, the Rana Plaza collapse in Bangladesh, which claimed almost 1,200 lives. Um, the people who worked there were ordered into that factory, even though it was condemned and dangerous. Mm -hmm. They collapsed an hour after they walked into it. Yeah. So I uh, wonder if you could address that also. So I, I do not claim to be an expert on the California law, unfortunately. But what I do know is that uh, I'm a member of a coalition of NGOs across the country called the Freedom Network. And the Freedom Network members from California were very worried about the California law, extremely worried. And, and it's a worry that I think people have about laws across the country that are gaining traction. And part of the problem is that many of these laws now have huge fines against traffickers. Huge fines sound like a fabulous idea, unless you represent victims. Because what that means is, if the huge fines are levied against someone who's convicted of trafficking, 
there is nothing left for restitution and there is nothing left for the victim. And arguably, those are the ill-gotten gains that were earned by the victim's labor, whether it's in the sex industry or in forced labor. And so how horrifying, frankly, it would be for an enormous fine to completely shutter the idea that victims actually should get any kind of compensation. Now, we see this because the, the, the theory, at least, is that these huge fines are then poured into a victim fund and that all victims benefit equally from the victim fund. Well, in theory, that's a wonderful thing. But in reality, that means that victims might get reimbursement for medical that means that victims might get a little bit of a pittance for lost wages. But they certainly do not recover what they lost, and they do not recover from that harm. And so there's some very good commentary written by Kathleen Kim, who's a professor here in the United States, or in California, and also Cindy Liu, who's at API Legal Outreach. And they did a very, very sort of pre-enactment, uh, careful assessment of the law and, and expressed tremendous concern about it. So I would, I would send you to, to their analysis. On the sweatshop problem and the whole sort of horror of Bangladesh, you know, there, there are two issues here. One is that sort of exploitation may not rise to the level of trafficking, but much of the exploitation that happens in the United States also does not rise to the level of trafficking. Where are the labor laws? and who is enforcing them. One thing that I did not mention but should have is that one of the great drivers of human trafficking is corruption. And this is certainly one of the great drivers of horrors like we saw in Bangladesh. Corruption, and at Human Rights Watch, this was a major focus of the, of the human trafficking work as well. That government officials were complicit in the trafficking, either by taking bribes or by engaging directly in, in trafficking itself. So I would say three things on that. One is, number one, I look at the trafficking in persons report that the State Department issues every year, not necessarily just to see how many people were prosecuted. I want to see how many state officials were prosecuted. So that's the test. Are they actually prosecuting state officials, law enforcement people, and, and you know, people in the Ministry of Labor who are turning a blind eye to abuses that are clearly going on in those factories? The second is, back to the be a good consumer. You know, I tried to figure out sort of which companies were producing clothing in that particular factory, and I will not buy from those anymore. That said, what we have is definitely a partial list. It's just the labels that happen to be found among the rubble. So companies have to be pushed, and if you stop buying somebody's clothes, send them a letter. Let them know. The third thing is, interestingly enough, um, Nick Kristof, who has done much good in the world, on this issue is really not on the money. And as much as I respect Kristof, if you read his book, um, Half the Sky, and if you hear him comment on forced labor, um, he, he believes and has said that sweatshops are one way that people in China pulled themselves up out of poverty. And yet that's not actually, I think, necessarily what's going on here. I mean, these are, these are institutions that keep people in poverty. And particularly with debt bondage and labor recruiting fees, they remain in poverty. So I don't think there's a bullet. I don't think there's a, a magic bullet here, but, but that would be my best. Go ahead if you have a follow-up. Could I just make one comment to build on what you said? Uh, for those who are interested, um, after the collapse of this factory, 
complex in Bangladesh, um, some 90 European firms signed on to a historic fire and safety accord, which obligates them to actually not cut and run, but to do something about these factories. They are led by H&M, a major Swedish women's uh, clothier, and a number of other companies. Uh, the U.S. firms, with four exceptions, refused to sign. And if you want to put pressure, uh, The Gap is one of the companies that refused to sign. They did their own initiative, which doesn't have the same legally binding requirements. So The Gap, Walmart, that's where to put the pressure. There was also a huge article in the New York Times that was really interesting in the business section about how these audits that are now being done are somewhat farcical. That there are now companies that go in and they audit, but it's kind of box checking. You know, we looked at X, we looked at Y, we checked the box, and it's all over. The reality, unfortunately, is that the auditors need to be very, very good. I think you had a question next, and then you'll be next. Sorry. Go ahead. You've been waiting patiently. Hi. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I was wondering, um, uh, the, the question I had, maybe it's naive, but I'm not sure, but uh, with the hotels and um, with the braiding, you use some... Um, people who had immigrated to the United States, they weren't Americans. So I'm, I'm wondering, um, uh, growing up in California, you know the labor laws and you, know, you, you have a certain mindset. And so what is there, who's facilitating them that are Americans and, and, and are there very many women and what, what's their motivation for it? I, don't, I guess I'm not quite understanding because it would be glaringly apparent to me, some, especially the girls braiding. I mean, who are the girls getting their braids done, I'm wondering. And how did someone not see that, report it, and what Americans are facilitating? Because in other countries, there are different ways of, uh, like he said, in China, that's the way up, or other uh, mindsets. Of, but in America, I, I'm... I just was curious what some of the people you prosecuted. I think it's pretty shocking, I mean, that these things happen in the United States. And, and I think it's that we're not, we're not looking, right? We don't see what's right in front of us. And so these, in order to earn $3.9 million, these little girls had to braid a lot of hair. And no one ever asked. No one ever asked, are you going to school? No one ever asked, are you getting paid? No one ever asked, do you want to be here? Have you talked to your family? I mean, I, I wonder what sort of small talk was going on during the hair braiding sessions. The reality, though, is that people are scared. And so I wouldn't put, I wouldn't put the onus all on the Americans who were sitting there getting their hair braided. The reality is that those girls were terrified. Right? They were terrified that something would happen to them if they, if they ran away. And so you know, part of it is that people, people do not raise their hands and say, help, I'm a trafficking victim, help. And frankly, sometimes weeks after someone has been taken out of a trafficking situation, they still don't think that they're a trafficking victim because now they're in this strange law enforcement situation that they don't understand and they kind of want to get out of that. And so we have trafficking victims who after two weeks in the hands of law enforcement say, I want to go back to that family that I was living with because they were that, that's what I know, right? They are my family. So one thing that Congress has done is given us 10 years. The statute of limitations on trafficking is 10 years. So trafficking victims have 10 years to decide whether or not they want to file a lawsuit. But part of this is, is, is changing the way that we look at things um, and changing the way that we identify trafficking. Um, in the sex industry, there is an entire architecture of law enforcement that is designed to stop illegal activity in the sex industry. 
In the labor sphere, we don't have that same architecture. We have hardly any Department of Labor inspectors, and the Department of Labor inspectors don't go into people's homes to see whether or not the nanny is trafficked. So when I talk to law enforcement officials and when I talk to prosecutors, I say to them, look, sex trafficking cases fall in your lap. Labor trafficking cases won't. So do me a favor. Get a dog, go to the park, and interview the nannies. Right? All your informants are wrong. If what you're trying to do is find cases of trafficking, then do what the brilliant Human Rights Watch researcher, Carol Peer, who wrote the first report on trafficking of domestic workers by diplomats in Washington, DC, do what she did, go to McDonald's on Sunday afternoon and hang out with all the domestic workers to find out what's going on. Because the domestic workers talk to one another and they know who can't leave the house. So we need to establish an entirely new set of informants and an entirely new set of law enforcement efforts to, to find these people. And, and as I said, I wouldn't sort of blame, uh, I wouldn't blame Americans, but I, but, I, but I would say that this is frequently not recognized. One of the most horrible cases was actually a police officer in Boston who ran into a woman sitting on the side of the street weeping and when the police officer went to her and said, what, you know, what's wrong? She said, well, I've just, I've just run away from my employer who's a Saudi princess. And the police officer took her back to that house. And years later, when that case was actually broken by law enforcement, and that police officer confronted the fact that he had taken her back to that house, he was horrified. But it never occurred to him that he could be taking her back to a place where she might not be working completely voluntarily. Right? So part of it is raising awareness. Yeah. Did you have a question? First, thank you for coming and sharing this with us today. Thank you. Um, you, you gave a, num a one-day number for uh, child rescues that was a national U.S. Department of Justice right. uh, program. Mm -hmm. How does that compare with the annual number? And is there any indication that they save up cases for the one-day PR event? So that's an excellent question. Uh, the short answer is I don't know. I wish I did. But what they, they stage these periodically, and they go online, and they set up appointments. So it's all sort of coordinated. And across the country, they're all sort of coordinating, and the FBI is sort of setting appointments on the same day so that it's a huge, huge sweep. I think the real problem here is that no one ever, two weeks later, a month later, a year later, goes back and says, what about those 150 people who were arrested? Right? What about those 105 children? Where are they? What happened to them? Are they in the foster care system? Are they now living in shelters? Where are they? And what do those shelters look like? Right? So there is great PR value in those sort of mega busts. There is less PR value in sort of facing what happens afterwards. But I would like to see a lot more attention on what happens afterwards. Thank you. Other questions? Yes, please. Hi, thank you for being here. Thank you. Most of the lecturers are women. There was a lecture I heard from um, a woman, a professor at uh, Columbia, and she said, this is a men's issue. Why aren't men publishing? It's very sick and nasty of our culture. Mm -hmm. And it's a loss of psychological masculinity when we have a lot of gay law, gay democracy, protecting men specifically against hate crime. And my, my concern has been the porn addiction and the substance abuse in among gay manatee. And 
I'm getting a dissertation in, oh, I'm working on dissertation, and I'm, as a man who's an advocate against uh, gay men, or an advocate for men against human trafficking, and I'm very um, upset that in our nation, where national identity is important to restore the man because he's been feminized because of post-feminism and political actors and scandal and corruption, that we need a, 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 a something among gay law, gay democracy. And if you could address that, having to do specifically with men that believe they're experts on men because of orientation persuasion. So I would love to see more men publish in this area. And I would also love to see more discussion of how trafficking impacts the LGBT community. Because particularly in New York, what we find are many, many of the children who are living on the streets, who are potential victims of trafficking, are LGBT children who have been thrown out of their homes by their families. And so that's particularly problematic because many of the shelters in New York are not geared to deal with transgender youth, right? They're not, de they're not geared to deal with LGBT children, and they don't want to. And so there's even been a lawsuit against one NGO that refused to sort of tackle the LGBT issues and, and problems in, in terms of shelter and housing. I think the other piece of this that needs really serious examination is the fact that many of the children who are living on the streets, there may not be an adult in the mix, right? There may not be someone inducing them to commit commercial sex acts. They may actually be committing acts of, of survival sex, right? If you have a choice between spending the night on the street where you might be raped or going home with someone for money and living and, and sleeping in a bed, which is obviously dangerous, and technically children can't consent to that. By law, for, pur for purposes of services, those are trafficking victims. But for purposes of prosecution, who can you prosecute? You can't prosecute the child for trafficking himself or herself. So it's a huge issue that I don't think we've grappled with effectively. So what do we do with these children who are actually engaging in survival sex? We consider them trafficking victims, but this is actually a much, much more complicated question. Thank you. Other questions? Thanks. Um, I wanted to know if you could elaborate on um, when there are raids or when we're rescuing people, um, are there conversations about do we rescue one person for the sake of all the others or do we wait and keep people in bad situations for the sake of saving a large number of people? You know, those conversations are probably internal to law enforcement. So since I'm sort of an outsider to that, I don't, I don't hear very much of that. But I have heard in the work that I've done internationally questions that are brought up by law enforcement about whether or not if you are, for example, trying to go after an American sex tourist predator, whether you wait until that person has already entered the hotel room and raped the child, or whether you arrest them before that, right? And that is a huge ethical and moral dilemma, right? If you're outside waiting for the crime to be committed, shouldn't you intervene to stop the crime before it happens? But then you don't have evidence, right? So then you can't prosecute. So I think those questions do come up. 
One thing that I think that federal law enforcement, which you know, admittedly has been doing these cases now since 2000, I think federal law enforcement has actually gotten reasonably good at this, and they've trained their personnel. Um, so ICE and HSI and the FBI now have victim witness coordinators who try and help victims when they are released. Um, and so federal law enforcement has gotten, has gotten to be pretty good at this. Um, and sometimes they will even contact non-governmental organizations before a raid so that that non-governmental organization knows how many beds they need to arrange ahead of time and knows what, uh, what languages of interpretation they might need to make available immediately. So that kind of pre-warning system is extremely helpful. As a lawyer, um, those cases don't come to me until much later, right? So the lawyers enter the mix, I think, too late. The lawyers need to be brought in much, much sooner. But by the time a victim comes to a pro bono attorney or a legal services organization, they've probably been out for some significant amount of time. And then the question is, what are you going to do in terms of cooperating on the criminal case? So the, the, raids, are, the raids are controversial because uh, what I saw in Bosnia, which made my blood boil, were raids that were televised, right? So the, the International Police Task Force and the local Bosnian police would go into a brothel with television cameras. So it would be a rescue, all with CNN in tow. Those victims did not consent to having their pictures. You'll notice in my presentation, there is not a single picture of a human being with a face you can recognize. Because I think that is insulting to survivors of trafficking. And it is particularly insulting when it is done in the context of a raid where women and children are literally trying to hide their faces so that people will not recognize them. Please. First of all, thank you so much. Thank you. This, thank you. This has shaken me to my feet, even though I thought came thinking I knew a little bit about this. I want to take it to Bosnia and Herzegovina governor because because there was a movie recently, and I'm not remembering the name of it. The whistleblower. The whistleblower. Yes, and I'm wanting to know just how closed it is in this country because the woman who went from the Midwest to the UN has not been able to work in this country since she got labeled as a whistleblower. Um, she's had to go to England. She's been there 13 or 15 years and not been able to work there. There is something in the law enforcement and the United Nations and the big wigs throughout the world, and the US is definitely involved in it, that shuts the door on that and won't do what needs to be done. And I've known for a long time that there is sex and drug trafficking that's gone on in this country for 20, 30, 40 years, mind control with women and daughters and wives. So the whistleblower, it's really interesting you bring that up because Human Rights Watch actually published a report called Hopes Betrayed, Trafficking of Women and Girls to, for, to, to Bosnia and Herzegovina for Forced Prostitution. And one of the main sources for that Human Rights Watch report was Kathy Volkovets, the, the police officer who went to work for the International Police Task Force in Bosnia and Herzegovina. 
Now, I think if anybody here has dealt with whistleblowers or been a whistleblower, you will know that being a whistleblower is always fatal. It doesn't matter what the issue is. It is almost always fatal to your career. One of the reasons why women, particularly in the beginning, refused to file sexual harassment cases against people who were committing all sorts of heinous acts in the workplace was because they feared that they would never be able to get another job, and they were right. And so, happily, I've just heard from Kathy, because I worked with Kathy on the HRW report. And Kathy is now back in the United States, and she's working, I believe, at an institute. So things are getting much, much better, although still definitely not perfect. And what Kathy did, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the report, but Kathy Bolkovats, when she was working for the International Police Task Force in Bosnia and Herzegovina, was working with a UN, uh, a really brilliant lawyer in the UN uh, named Madeline Reese in the Human Rights Office. And she was the person in charge of tracking all of the human trafficking in Bosnia and Herzegovina in the post-conflict period. And what she found in interviewing these victims was that the victims told her that some of their clients were actually people from the UN International Police Task Force. Kathy decided to blow the whistle when one of her fellow police officers, an American who gave her a ride home from headquarters one night, said to her that he was very sad that day because the woman that he had bought from the brothel had run away. You had UN officials going to brothels and buying women, buying their passports, and taking them home to their housing units to work as their own personal sexual servants and housekeepers to boot. You had contractors for the US government, people working as military contractors for S4, the stabilization force in Bosnia and Herzegovina. US military contractors earning oodles of money, living in the community. Military personnel were not allowed to live in the community, but military contractors could living in housing units within the regular community in Bosnia and Herzegovina, going to brothels. One that they loved in particular was called Harley Davidson. It was run by a Bosnian brothel owner named Debeli, which means little fat guy. Debeli sold women as chattel to US military contractors who admitted that they had purchased those women in a, in a package deal they bought weapons and the women and the passports together. And guess what they were sent home for? They were sent home for purchasing weapons. And no one was ever prosecuted here in the United States. One thing that had to happen was that the laws in the United States had to change after Bosnia. And so my colleagues and I, when I was then at Human Rights Watch, and since then, we have spent the last nine years amending US law, so now there is extraterritorial jurisdiction to prosecute crimes exactly like that one. So the first thing we had to do was expand the reach of what's called the Military Extraterritorial Jurisdiction Act, a law that creates jurisdiction for US military personnel. And we extended the extraterritoriality of that law and the touch of that law, so now US government employees and all contractors can be prosecuted. And then we also amended the trafficking law so that if a trafficker commits a crime in any country, if he's a US citizen, a US green card holder, or comes to the United States to bring his kids to Disneyland, he can be prosecuted. Guess how many people have been prosecuted? Zero. Because you can change the law, but you can't create the political will to make the Department of Justice enforce it. 
right? So we still have an enormous problem here. Again, we've changed multiple laws. We have a long way to go. <laughs> I think that's all I can say. Other questions? Yes, please. Thank you. Thank you very much for your very uh, provocative, informative uh, talk. Uh, many of your comments have alluded to issues that are seen outside the United States, but I drive back and forth between Santa Barbara and Ventura taking care of uh, Mexican children, and I look over in the fields there, and I wonder if some variation of this is not going on right here in our own homes. <clears throat> I see a um, sort of a Venn diagram uh, overlap between overt trafficking, as you've discussed, immigration, and coercion. There's been discussion about, for example, the, uh, the garment factories in uh, Southeast Asia, but it's, I think it, it's a sense that it's going on right here. And I wonder if you could help us tease those three apart. Are they really different? Is there really overlap? So that's question one. And question two, if you could, uh, if you could speculate how the discussion around immigration reform at the national level might or might not trickle down to what's going on between here and uh, Ventura. Right. Thank you. So that's an excellent question. Um, there are a number of organizations in the United States that are focused on exactly that, and one of them is the Coalition of Immokalee Workers based in Florida. But the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, which has uh, recently run, won the RFK Award for, uh, for, for excellence in, in human rights work here in the United States, so the Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Award, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers literally goes through and looks for cases by sending former workers into labor crews, looks for cases of human trafficking in America's agricultural sector. And it definitely, definitely exists. And the way that it frequently happens is that you will be a worker, say, in Mexico, and you'll pay an enormous recruiting fee to come to the United States. And so your promise that you're going to have a job when you come to the United States, this happened to a group of workers who were told that they were going to be working in North Carolina. And they landed in North Carolina expecting that they were going to work in a tree nursery in North Carolina. They were put in a van. They were driven for 11 hours. They'd never been to the United States before. They were from Guatemala. And one turned to the other and said, wow, America is such a big country. We're still in North Carolina. The reality was they were now in Connecticut, and they were held in forced labor in Connecticut. Um, but they're really interesting cases, but it takes very creative prosecutors to bring these cases. So one case was a particularly egregious case where Homeless men were picked up off the street by human traffickers and taken to agricultural fields, taken to these agricultural fields to pick tomatoes. They were paid in crack because all of these homeless men were drug addicted. They were paid in crack. The trafficking prosecutor couldn't get enough evidence to prosecute it as a trafficking crime, but... She worked with the EPA and figured out that the labor fields, those agricultural fields, were dripping raw sewage into a stream. And so the EPA helped her bring a Clean Water Act case. And once they got the subpoena through the Clean Water Act case, they were able to actually track down all of the evidence and discover all the crack that was being paid out of the company's store and, and discover that this was actually a forced labor case. But you know, she calls it the homeless dude case. Like, you wouldn't think of homeless men on the streets of the United States being forced into forced labor in the agriculture sector, but that's exactly what happened. So you asked about the intersection with immigration. There are a lot of people who work in human trafficking who are now engaging in the debate and in the advocacy and lobbying on human trafficking within the immigration 
reform. And the main thrust of the work that's being done in Washington, D.C. with lawmakers is to remind lawmakers that all of these guest worker schemes, all of this sort of alphabet soup of different visas that I recited earlier, those are sites of potential victimization of workers. And it's largely because of the role of labor recruiters. Labor recruiters are at this point the, the sort of dark feature of work by immigrants in the United States. And the labor recruiters are the ones who put them in debt. Many of these workers then mortgage their entire life, their family home, they mortgage everything in order to come to the United States, thinking they can remit money home to pay the debt, and then realizing that actually they can't. So I would keep an eye on the labor recruiter piece, because that's a real, that's a real modus of abuse. We want to thank you very much for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.